Well, good morning. Good morning, everyone. Um, I apologize in advance for my voice. Something happened in the last 24 hours to kind of give me a little rough edge here. Um, well, I, yeah. Or football games. football games. Oh, that too. Yeah. I've, I've had this thought frequently that um, so many things in the Christian life are, well, God, why wouldn't you just go ahead and make it all happen? Instantly. Why, Lord, why wouldn't you just make all this, make us instantly like more like Jesus? <laughs> it's a really good question. And yet the scriptures are filled with things like study to sow yourself approved. Right? So you studied, Arthur. Many of you are studying. You're in school studying. Many of you have studied. You've reached advanced degrees. It didn't just happen like that, did it? <laughs> it doesn't just happen. It's, it's almost like the law of the harvest. You have to plant the seed, and you pick it tomorrow, the next day, right? No. You wouldn't have anything. You would not have anything. And there's so many things in the Christian life that are just that. You have to plant. And then you wait. And then you water. And then you wait. And then you weed. And then you wait. And then you tend the crops. And you keep it away from pests away from it. And you make sure that it gets sun. And eventually you reap a harvest. Congratulations on your harvest. <laughs> Last time, we're going to be in Philippians 4. And last time, we raced through five, three verses. So, Greg, we're going to get to one verse today. Well, Ho- Hopefully. <laughs> we raced through three, and so I've got to go back and pick up on those last three just to make sure we didn't forget anything. We read some challenging instructions in Paul's letter concerning our heart attitudes. He said things like, rejoice in the Lord always, and again we say rejoice. And again, that doesn't just happen overnight. (laughs) He said, let your reasonableness, even when you're driving, be known to everyone. It doesn't happen overnight. And then he said, do not be anxious about anything, but pray with thanksgiving about everything. So, these words, like the rest of Scripture, they express God's thoughts to us. They express His desires for us. They apply the gospel directly to the emotional aspect of our lives. We have emotions, and the Word of God is taking authority over our emotions. Paul speaks deeply to the issue of how we are to train our hearts to be citizens of heaven. These words are a lifeline to everyone who flounders in the riptides of emotions. 
Let me ask you, how are you doing with these three things? You are rejoicing in the Lord always, right? Always? Again, I say. You are letting your reasonableness shown to everyone, right? And your anxiety. Think of the past. Because you take everything to the Lord in prayer with thanksgiving. Peace has come. Or maybe the seeds of peace have been planted and we're wanting peace to come. And that's what verse 7 promises us. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's stop for a word of prayer here. Lord, the Bible is is your breath breathed out to us. Lord, it's your instructions and And today, Lord, we're going to study this verse and we're going to try to comprehend more what it says and we want you to apply it to our lives and to our minds, to our thinking. Lord, we pray that not only would you speak to our emotions, but you would have authority over our thinking. Lord, not only would you have authority over our emotions, but even authority over our our thinking. And Lord, that you would say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your emotions, and with all your thinking. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For your heart and mind to be guarded by the peace of God is exactly what Jesus promises us. As a reward for for obedience in doing these things. Rejoice that your reason will be known. Do not be anxious because you pray with thanksgiving. The reward is the peace of God. Guarding you, protecting you. This word guard is like an army that protects you from enemy invasion. This is the way God's peace guards our heart and our mind. It's not only that we have peace with God, but we have peace that's greater than all of our anxiety. We have, we have peace that guards us. Um, it's, it's greater than understanding and it protects us. We receive this blessing by praying to God, by being obedient to his word. So that's a recap of last time. That's where we are in terms of our emotions. But Paul goes on in verse 8 to talk about our mind. Now, it's interesting because we have lots of people here that have studied a lot. We have people that have studied the mind. They study why philosophers among us... um, Many philosophers and psychiatrists have taught about the mind. They've studied it. How does it work? How does it, how does it tick? Why are we the way we are? How could this possibly have evolved from an amoeba? The whole deal. Um, this is Paul's turn to talk about the mind and how we are to think. So get ready. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Is that difficult to understand? Is that hard to understand what he's saying there? Is there any hidden secret stuff? It's not. It's amazingly simple. 
But this is not kid stuff. This is not kid stuff. It's more than a list of ideas. It's a clear call for all believers in God to rise up and take control of their thinking. Often we see that Christianity has clear instructions for things we are to do and guidelines for what we are to say. But here, Paul defines how Christians ought to think. And why not? Our human nature is such that we can get stuck on something where we're thinking about it continuously and we cannot stop thinking about it. Our thoughts get locked in and breaking free becomes very, very difficult. This model, this verse models for us, it must model for us how Jesus thought. Don't you think? Don't you think Jesus thought like this or thinks like this still? Could we really learn to to think the way that Jesus thinks if we followed this verse? What a wonderful change would be in store for us, don't you know? You know, the experts have studied the amazing power of the mind. But they don't ever say that we should think the way Jesus thinks. Shouldn't we align our thinking with the thinking of the Son of God? I mean, just just to have that opportunity, my heart leaps. Why not think the way Jesus thinks? Hmm. Then there is this. Frequently, the worst display of, this, of sin in our lives is not in our actions, but it's in our thoughts. All sin begins in the mind. It originates in our thoughts. This is why Paul, Paul writes in Romans 12 to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Evil thinking without intervention is going to wind up in sin. Evil behavior. What was the first sin of Lucifer, Satan? Pride. What is that? Sin of the mind. What is lust? A sin of the mind. What is covetousness? A sin of the mind. What is greed? A sin of the mind. We could go on, but hear this. The sins of the mind are the greater threat to the child of God than theft and adultery and murder. So know this, we are in a war. Satan is attacking your mind. Because he doesn't want you to think the way Jesus thinks. So he's going to come against you. And these eight things that Paul lists. In fact, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. So again, the law of the harvest is going to apply here. This isn't going to happen overnight. But, we're faithful to plant the word as the seed in our hearts and tend to it, meditate on it, contemplate it, ask God to help us with it. We're going to think more like Jesus thinks. So Paul's command is very relevant to us today as the thoughts filling our minds are, for better or worse, like invisible powers that rule over us. You know, people always say they want to have a free will to do whatever pops in their mind, but really that's the definition of insanity. You know, we we do things because we choose 
We want the results of those things that we choose to do. And if we, if we disconnect from that, that's insanity. To think you just do things at a whim with no connection, no goal, no, no purpose, that's crazy. To fight and win the battle of the mind, and again, I'm, I'm very cautious here because I know we have people that have studied this very d- deeply. But I'm just trying to say what God says. To fight and win the battle of the mind, we must believe what Paul says and train ourselves to think the way he prescribes for us. To obtain the victory, it's crucial to think according to God's design. These eight topics are about those thoughts which we should allow ourselves to linger on. And knowing them should spur us on to control those spontaneous negative thoughts that come up and from ever becoming permanent. If we know the eight things that Paul's talking about, then when negative, spontaneous things fly into our mind, we can recognize them for what they are and not linger on them. In fact, I was thinking about Mary during worship in these 14 verses that I was thinking, yes, we need to fill our mind with those verses. Those verses, because that truth will be a guard for us Mm -hmm. against everything else that comes up. Paul describes the things a Christian should think about in order to, for us to grow in Christ-likeness. These words aren't the fruit of the Spirit. The list doesn't include the gifts of the Spirit. They're not faith, hope, and love. But they are divinely appointed words that teach us how to think. Let us all learn to think like this. The first one, whatever is true. Now, to think of what is true comes first because truth is the essence of all God's creation and commands. It's also the grounds of all of our obedience and all our decisions. The Hebrew word for truth, a meth, is a three-letter word made up of the first, middle, and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. From beginning to end, truth is what's real. From God's view is what's real. So whatever is true deserves our attention and respect. It's true. It's real. The first question we should ask of every proposition, every thought, is not is it popular, not is it workable, but is it true? Is it true and not false? Is it true and not insincere? Is it true and not deceitful? These are the questions we should ask. When your mind grasps what is true, you will then recognize everything that is not true. What is true kind of responds to how God sees reality. His view is the final test. John 3.33 tells us God is true. Jesus claimed that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Since God is unchanging, the moral standards revealed in his word are also unchanging. They apply to every culture, every nation, and every place, and every age. C.S. Lewis wrote, all that is not eternal is eternally out of date. What the eternal is always relevant as always today and since it is by truth we are sanctified it is confirmed that this first area that we should be thinking about is what is true think about what is true all truth is worthy of our attention but not all truth comes in the same size yes it is true that two plus two equals four but that doesn't necessarily need to fill our mind paul wants us to grow our thinking to include the big truths 
creation, redemption, life and death, heaven and hell, instead of only filling it with the small truth of daily concerns. Studying the scriptures equips you with the big eternal truths which will help make sense out of all the smaller truths of this life. By thinking of what is true, we gain knowledge to defeat Satan's attempts to, to deceive and ensnare us in his lies. By knowing what is true, we can test everything we encounter with the wisdom of God's word. You know, we live in a society, you probably realize this, that assaults us daily with sarcasm, criticism, skepticism, depression. You know, the list is, goes on. It's all about me, right? You're supposed to say, no, it's all about me. You know? <laughs> Our culture even assumes that tolerance means accepting every thought as right and good, even if God's word plainly declares it to be evil. If you think along with the world on most topics, you will stray far from God's truth. So we must also resist this idea of pragmatism, or which is an idea that which to, that says if something works, if it brings satisfaction, at least for a moment, or if it accomplishes what you want, then it must be true. It's clear that sin often brings pleasure for a re- season. If it didn't, we probably wouldn't be so enticed by it. So we can test everything by the truth of God's word, not by feelings or pleasure. Why would you fill your mind with trifles and forfeit rich, vital encounter with the greatest truths of all? the truth of God's word. So we need to exercise and refresh our minds by filling it with all truth and think on these truths and especially the higher truth, the truth found in God's word. Whatever is true, think on this. Is that going to happen overnight? But we need to weed out the lies. Stop believing the lies. Stop thinking about the lies. The second one, whatever is honorable, <clears throat> some translations might say noble or honest. While truth is in short supply in the world today, the supply of what is honorable may be even less. If a man is what he thinks, then by grace, God's grace, let us strive to make honorable themes the subjects of our thought. Let us think of things that deserve honor and respect that display honesty and good moral character, that are fair and proper and not deserving blame or criticism. Let these thoughts fill your mind, not the things mean, dishonorable, or dishonest. Christians living with the dignity of being created in God's image are to think and live an honorable life, right? When we're made in God's image, we are to live an honorable life with real purpose and noble intentions. So let us think along these lines in the light of eternity, remembering that these lives are short and uncertain and the reality of eternal future is either in heaven or in hell. Let us think of what is honorable and show the world that everyone must stand before a holy God and someday soon. The third one, whatever is just, and some some translations will say whatever is right. Things just or right, no deception, no fraud, no preferential treatment. The same word describes God in Romans 3 and in Jesus Christ in 1 Peter. Whatever He's just, he's right. We too are to be righteous and to act justly, we first must begin to think justly. 
To think on what is just begins with thinking on the holy nature of God, especially as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, and to model our behavior and our thinking after his. Justice seeks right relations between men by balancing and judging between conflicting interests without partiality. You've seen the, the blind lady of justice, and she's holding the scales, and she's got a scarf around her eyes. So she's without partiality. She's determining. Right living has two parts. Love of truth is the intellectual part. Love of justice is the moral part. Justice is unusual in that there are no degrees of justice. Either you're just or you're unjust. One act of injustice spoils the life of a man from being seen as just. So to think of what is just and right will help us limit any acts of injustice. Think of what is right and just. The fourth one, whatever is pure, pure, free of contamination or fault, free of shame or guilt, unmixed, unpolluted, undefiled. Not only does this include sexual chastity, but purity in the widest sense. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. Let your mind dwell on pure things. Now, what sorts of pure things can you think of? We think of God in his ways, the Holy Scriptures, the selfless love of a mother for a child, or the protecting love of a husband for his wife. We must think of what is pure to, to aid the growth of purity in all of our actions, our speech, our prayer, and our worship. You know, and, and I'll probably step on some toes here. I've been reading this, thinking what's pure over Halloween week mm-hmm. and you just think you know okay people see no harm in it and I'm thinking Jesus is training me to think of what is pure why would I put my mind in this place to think of all of these horrible situations that are done up in Halloween costumes and things I'm thinking Lord help me with this I want to think the way Jesus is teaching me to think. So it comes down to choices of songs you listen to, Mm -hmm. movies you watch, Mm -hmm. books you read, Mm -hmm. parties you go to. It it begins to affect every aspect of who you are and what you do if you are going to think about things pure. Doesn't it? And then, the fifth one, whatever is lovely. Where did that come from? We are to think about what is lovely. This particular word only occurs this one place in the whole New Testament. And even after Paul says that we're to think about what is true and what is just and what is pure, he now adds lovely to the list. And it's not, a, it's not an echo. It's not a duplicate of something that's preceded it. Think about what is lovely. Now, what would that be like? To think about what is lovely. Lovely means what is pleasing, agreeable, and delightful, which reveals harmony or grace. What is lovely is considered beautiful, even if it's not a physical characteristic. For example, goodness and graciousness are often thought of as lovely. 
In fact, many of the kindly graces of character, which are basically the fruit of the Spirit, are considered lovely. A Christian's thoughts ought not to be dwelling on unkindness or criticism. These things injure the growth of Christ-likeness in us, as does an ugly temper, a frowning face, or an act of violence. Raise beauty and grace and loveliness to the rightful place in your thinking. And let us remember that Jesus Christ himself is absolutely pleasing and delightful. So we should think often on our Savior, whose loveliness grows as we draw nearer to him. Think about what is lovely. Does that sound like it's going to be difficult? Do you have examples of what is lovely? The sixth one. Whatever is of good whatever is of whatever is commendable or of good repute meaning to give approval or to speak well of something often also referring to what deservedly enjoys a good reputation these are still some things that many people of the world will, will agree to commend courtesy they will commend courtesy bravery honesty temperance respect for parents and they will praise those people who show these virtues but there are some people that will not or they will choose other things. So people do not provide a good standard for us of what we should think about and what is commendable. There are some who prefer to even admire schemers or deceivers or those who defraud others to gain wealth, popularity, or power. But not us. We are to focus on those blessed things of which God commends. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love believes the best about others and refuses to believe an evil report about someone until there is truthful evidence to establish it. Now, after these six themes have been listed, Paul gives two final qualities, and he prefaces each one with the word if, which allows these final two qualities to to be broader, to, to sum up anything that he may have missed, and to show us the endless reach of Christian thought. So he's not trying to say focus on a narrow part of life. I mean... These, these things he's talking about are very wide and broad because God fills the heavens. So it's not limiting us. It's not a, a negative thing. That It's a directive thing to get us thinking correctly. If there is any excellence, he says, although Peter uses this word to describe a quality of God and, and as the first quality we are to add to our faith, the excellent, this is the only time Paul uses this word. It defines that active quality which makes someone or something visibly stand out as remarkable. It never refers to a hidden virtue. It never refers to something that's underneath the surface. It's always visible and on display. Things of excellence. When something in nature properly fulfills its purpose, that fulfillment is referred to as excellent. Land that produces crops on a farm is considered as excellent because it fulfills its purpose. The tool that works correctly is excellent because it does exactly what that tool is designed to do. The sun and the stars are excellent in exactly the same way. They do exactly what God has commanded them to do and made them to do. A Christian demonstrates excellence by living in a manner worthy of the gospel. He is called to live in Christ, having received everything for life and godliness, 
having become a partaker of the divine nature, and having believed the precious and magnificent promises of God, think on things that show excellence. If there is anything worthy of praise, is the last one. This phrase extends the early one about things commendable, worthy of admiration or approval. Of course, every attribute and work of God is worthy of praise. So daily we should think on God's greatness and on his marvelous works, both in creation and in human history. And we are to honor all people, including those from the world, who demonstrate God-honoring actions and qualities. Even though all men are sinner, all men are sinners because God's common grace, even unbelievable, unbelieving people can be kind, caring, and loving. Even in unbelievers, ultimately those qualities will bring glory to God. So let us think on these things that are worthy of praise rather than those things that are to be condemned. So we have this duty, or maybe it really is a privilege, of thinking on these things. I think of the ancients, the ancients marveling that of all the nations on the earth, God had given his laws only to Israel. And how much they loved the law of God. They knew that they had special revelation from God and they rejoiced in it this verse is like that this verse is God's special revelation to believers of how we are to think and the world doesn't have it if you went to Duke and took a class they wouldn't teach you this I don't think. <laughs> this verse cuts through all the noise and distraction of a lost world and shows us how to best use our minds. Now, not only do we have an obligation to think as Paul instructs, but we also gain much reward as our minds are shaped and transformed by what we think. Again, the law of the harvest comes to play. We think, we plant the seed, and we think, we think. The harvest will come. The harvest of this of this blessedness, of this peace. It's going to come. The steady process of thinking of these graces and virtues will mark them deeply on us and transform our character. We recognize that to see virtue lived out in us, we must first begin thinking about that virtue. We must begin by admiring that virtue in our mind and our you know, the Bible says to love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. How else to love the Lord your God with all your mind except to think the way he's teaching us to think? What about you? What types of things do you allow your mind to dwell on? I've got three reactions to this, this verse. Okay. First reaction. Paul has just told us how we are to rejoice in the Lord and control our anxiety. And now he is pointing out what should fill our thinking. Just who does he think he is? First reaction. Just who does he think he is? 
He's trying to tell me how to rule over my heart, and now he's telling me how to rule over my thinking. Who does he think he is? And by the way, who does he think I am that I could do such a thing? First reaction. <coughs> Think about it. And here's the question. Does Jesus Christ have authority to command how we should think? Gateway Christian Fellowship. Does Jesus Christ have the authority to command how we should think? Yes. To always rejoice. To be reasonable to everyone. To not be anxious about anything. To always pray. Of course he has all authority. My stars. He healed the lame. He gave sight to the blind. He cured the sick. He raised the dead. He forgave sin. He laid down his life to death only to pick it up again. All authority has been given to him. Of course he has authority to speak to us how we should. So he has authority. Besides all this, we belong to him. He is ours and we are his. We belong to him. He has authority to speak as to how we should think. Second reaction. Okay, so we should do this, but is it wise? Is this wise? Is this foolishness? Is this childishness? Is this wise? Okay. What if you went the way, the other way, and thought exactly what is opposite to this? Let's test it by throwing out the other side. So, you would live a life think, always thinking about what is false, what is unworthy, what is deceptive, what is filthy, what is repulsive, what should be condemned as inferior and worthy of cursing. Would that make a better life for you? No, I didn't make it. <laughs> I was going to say, the next line here is maybe we know from first-hand experience what thinking like that is like. What if everybody in our fellowship thought that way? What if everybody in the world thought that way? <coughs> the danger of disobedience is clear. Yes, he has authority. And yes, it is, it is right. It is wise. Third reaction. How in the world can I do this? How could I do this? How could I think this way? Yes, it is honorable to think like this. Yes, he does have the authority to command us to think this way. But is it possible? Well, Paul seems to think so. In other words, why would he write this? if he didn't intend for it to be false. Paul thinks we can actually decide for ourselves how we will think. Or maybe he sticks it up there as a goal and says, point towards this. Can you choose what you will think about? You can choose what you dwell on. You can certainly try. You can choose what you. You can dwell on. You can. It, it's a. It's a matter of practice. It's the law of the harvest. You've got to train yourself how to think. 
Their little babies get no training in how to think. They just grow up <laughs> thinking. Right? When have you stopped and trained yourself how to think before? God would not command something for us to do that he was unwilling to give us the power to do it. He tells us to be perfect. He tells us to love our neighbors. He tells us to be saved. None of that's possible without Jesus coming to help us, to make it possible. Of course, he will help us think this way. And if you stumble over this verse, like it's one of these reactions, or maybe you've got a fourth reaction, I want you to let the full weight of this verse rest on you. He's commanding you how to think. And it's not in the the theology part of this letter. It's not over in the doctrinal part. It's not over in this, that, and the other thing. This is pure application. Based on everything that he's already said, this is is how to apply the gospel in your life. You want to apply the gospel in your life? Learn to think like this. Don't give up the first day. It doesn't seem to hold much fruit for you. Keep going. He has the authority, the command is wise, and he gives the power to fulfill it. So what is the problem? 1 Corinthians 14, 20 says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Let the crop grow. Keep nourishing it. We simply need to grow to maturity. These commands for our thinking and emotions show that God has the utmost dignity for how he has made us in his own image. Think about it. He would not tell us how to to control our emotions and how to think unless he knew he had put that capability, made that power available to us. We are made in his image. He has made us rational, relational, and thoughtful creatures, but we've strayed from his perfection. Now by his grace in Christ, he provides power we need to think, as he describes. He is showing his caring love for us and that he would tell us what is best and pleasing to him and how we think. And to give us the power by his spirit so that we can understand and follow and reap the rewards of obedience. I mean, he tells us how to think, and then he talks about the promise of obedience, the reward of obedience. This is not a a mere suggestion on how we should think. And I've gotten to this part of the letter and I'm thinking, Lord, maybe I need to go back to the beginning and start read it all again. That you have arrived at this place where you're, you're, you're so concerned about our partnership for the gospel. You're so concerned about our pressing on to reach the goal that he's called us to that you're now outlining for us how we should think. We should think. I mean, that's one of the basic criteria of life. There's a, a little blip going on in your brainwave, and they say, oh, he's alive. He's thinking. And then there's Mark 9, 23. Maybe this is one of my favorite verses. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. So your mind is more than a storage container for facts and figures. It's more than just a data bank. 
Your mind is a place of worship. Your mind is a place of, of, of filtering, of sorting out, of, of promoting and, 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 and regarding certain ideas and topics as greater than others. Your mind is designed by God and is a feature of being created in his image. And it's given us a marvel, marvelous capability to think, to decide, and to choose. It's an engine of creativity and expression and innovation. And for knowing God and proclaiming who he is and loving all aspects of his glory. Your mind is a marvelous gift. And in this one verse, Paul tells us how to use our minds for the glory of God. So what do you think, church? Does he have authority? Yes. Is it wise? Yes. Is it possible? Not without him. But with him, all things are possible. Let's pray together. Who would have thought that these bodies of dust and clay could think like the Son of God would think? Why in the world did we ever think that would be an easy thing? But Lord, you, you have shown us great respect. Lord, you've honored us that you have written down for us these instructions of how to think. And you've, you've outlined, Lord, the, the attributes and qualities that you know would sustain us and would help us to live life on this earth to the glory of God. Lord, these things help us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Lord, these things will help us love you more and love your people more. And love your message more. Lord, I know when I fail from thinking this way, or my mind gets trained on the wrong idea, it's you that delivers me. But Lord, you use your scriptures. You use the words of God to, to shake me free. Lord, and, and it's like those verses that were read during worship this morning. Those words are lovely and pure and true and commendable and worthy of praise. Lord, let us, let us train our minds to think on these things. And Lord, if our mind doesn't have much of those things to think about, let us begin filling it. Let us take steps, Lord, to fill it with those things. Father, let us be wise. Give us discernment, Lord. And let us take inventory and stock of what's in our brains and begin to sort it out. And just ask you, Father, for victory over the things that we should not dwell on. And Lord, a submission and a yielding to the things that we are to linger on. Lord, we thank you for this message from, from Paul's pen and to the Philippians. Lord, how it, it's just it's just another it's just another brief glimpse of truth of how far we have fallen 
that we would push back on this, that we would resist it. And Lord, we would say, well, I want the freedom to think about anything I want to think about. And yet, Lord, you know how frail we are and how weak we are, and you have taken the, the care to write it out for us. Let us be wise to believe and follow you, God. Lord, I pray that you'd help us see that you have full authority and wisdom and power and yet us yield to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.